0: We have to remember, uh, as we'll see next time, that what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1, it's easy to say, well, that's what the world is like. Uh, but the tragedy that we realize and which reveals our need for the gospel is that he's also describing ourselves. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you, uh, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And so uh, we understand the world is lost in sin. We lament it, but we also see a sad picture of ourselves. Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 28 through 32 is the sermon text. And hear the word of God. And even as they did not like to retain in their knowledge God, uh, retain God in their knowledge, rather, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this word. It is, uh, as I just said, a sobering word. It is a difficult word, especially when we see in some measure, well, certainly a picture of our day, but also a sad picture of ourselves, Uh, certainly before we were Christians, but even to some extent now. Uh, who is it who can raise his hand and say, I am righteous? As Paul will conclude, there isn't a single one. All of us together are condemned by the law and our mouth is silenced by the law. So we ask you, God, that we would find in this uh, in this message and in this text even encouragement, but a clearer picture of our need for the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as we come to the conclusion of chapter one of the book of Romans, we are at the conclusion of Paul's argument about uh, the Gentiles, or the heathen nations. He'll come to the Jews next in chapter 2, but his original point in chapter 1, having stated in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is uh, revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and sin of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and then describing those men uh, in, in verses 19 through 32, which we're concluding now, he is speaking primarily of, again, the heathen nations. And then he'll come to the Jews. And what we notice, certainly, as we've seen, but as he comes to the conclusion, this stands out uh, strongest still, is uh, the bleakness of the picture that he's painting. But we also recognize, uh, as soon as we say that, that what Paul is describing is alarmingly similar to uh, the situation in which we find ourselves today in America. The question is, what are we to do about that? Well, let me just say that for my part, I am glad that it is so. I am glad that modern-day America resembles first-century Rome because we will have no difficulty from the very beginning of the book in appreciating the message of the book of Romans and thus seeing the glory of the gospel, the gospel of justification, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. We do not live in an age of morality, and as I say, Yes, that is lamentable, but in a sense, thank God it is so. Because the, the book of Romans speaks loud and clear today in a way perhaps that it wouldn't in other ages. The answer then to this problem of the wrath of God that is being revealed through such alarming immorality is that which Paul gives just before it. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. The faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And it is that which precedes this discussion of the wrath of God. That is uh, the message that Paul had to preach to a world that was lost in sin, alarming sin. A world not of morality, but of immorality. And his message to that world is that the gospel is for anyone, anyone at all who has faith. Even the worst sinner, the worst possible offender, he describes in Romans chapter one. What an amazing message Paul is saying. There's nothing so wonderful and so liberating, which is why he was so eager to preach it. It's why he wasn't ashamed of it. Paul is preaching to those who are like what he is describing in Romans chapter one. He is not preaching to the good man. He is preaching to the bad man. The man lost in sin. And his message is this. You are a man whose case has been proven in court. You are guilty beyond a shadow of doubt. And even you cannot deny it. You are exactly like What I have described in Romans chapter one, your case is hopeless. You are lost in sin, condemned forever. And yet the message of the gospel, he says, is for you. It meets exactly your case and your need, because in that courtroom, Paul says, in comes Jesus Christ, the very son of God. And he says, I have paid his sins. Or I have paid for his sins to which the father, who is also the judge says of the sinner, then I shall regard him as a sinner no more. That is the message of the gospel. It is that a sinner may be justified freely by the grace of God. Merely by believing in the gospel. And then if you think of the courtroom imagery, who then is there to condemn once God has justified? Once he has let the sinner off. This is ultimately where Paul will will go in Romans chapter eight when he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. A pardon that is free and full in the verdict now, which is rendered for the guilty sinner is righteous. Amazing. That is the gospel. And that is what Paul was offering in his preaching. The ability to be let off, as it were, even though we had no right to be. A full and a free pardon. To have Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, stand in our place condemned and thus justified by His blood. Again, that is the message of the Gospel. And that is the message that we are able, like Paul, to preach to the man who is condemned and knows it. This is the best news there ever was. Who would not wish to have an interest In his blood. But as we've seen at the same time. Who will ever care to know the gospel we have? And who will ever listen to the preaching? Unless first men are convinced that they're lost in sin. In other words, that their case matches exactly what Paul is describing in Romans chapter one. And then again in chapters two and three. Unless man is able to see his true state. Under the wrath of God and that God's wrath even now is being revealed against him. And as John the Baptist says that the axe is even now laid at the root of the trees so that at any moment they might be cut down and cast into fi- into the fires of hell unless they repent and believe the gospel. And so we must begin with this and we must indeed have the courage to face things as they really are, even if they really are as bad as this. And I don't think any of us can deny that they are. That things today really are just as bad as Paul is describing. But only then will we glory in the gospel. And share Paul's amazing confidence in it. And desire to share it with others. Again, even to a world lost in sin. We will be able to say, here is a message for you, the sinner. Here is a way to be saved. Well, last time... So we come to the concluding verses. Remember what led him to say it in verses 21 through 27. We, we saw Paul was saying this, and, and really all of it is, is just one argument. Verses 19 through 32, but we looked at 21 through 27. Paul was describing two things, as you remember. First, this terrible downward spiral into sin. Man just gets worse and worse and worse. It is a process uh, which I called uh, of moral degradation. First, man denies what he knows to be true about God. And then as a result of this, his mind becomes depraved, which is a thought we see again in verse 28. And then as a third step, men become idolaters. They exchange the glory of God for uh, the 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 crudeness of the creation. Following this as a second point. We saw how God responds to this. He gives men over to their sinfulness. He pushes them into sin, as it were, and lets them have their fill of sin. And we saw the lengths to which this has led man, even into the worst kind of moral perversion, that of homosexuality. This is the lowest man is able to descend in sin. He can go no further. And so sin involves first A denial of the creator. And then as a result of this, an inversion of his created order. Once you get rid of God, or at least once you think you've gotten rid of God, then you can, in your own mind, begin to live life as you please. The reality is that you are actively denying God all the time and taking everything that is good about him and his creation, and you are twisting it, you are distorting it, and you are inverting it. But as we saw, and as I just said, God is not passive in this. He is actively involved. He is dealing with man according to what his sin deserves. Verse 27. Men receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And that penalty is meted out in the fact that God is giving man over to sin. The penalty for sin, as I said last time, Now, now we would not think like this, but this is how God thinks. The penalty for sin in the present age is more sin. And when you understand what a grotesque and what a terrible thing sin is, that sin is itself its own punishment, then you will see the justice of this. God is giving man over, verse 24, verse 26, and that becomes, again, the theme of our present section, verse 28. The fact of God handing man over. Or giving man over. Or delivering man over. And again we see as we come to verse 28. Now for the last time this verb. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting. Here the thought is in essence the same thought of verse 27 carried forward. That thought was that. Uh, he says, men leaving the, the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, that thought is carried forward into verse 28, which is clear by the phrase even as and even as they did not like uh, to to keep in their minds the, the knowledge of God The precise thought of verse 27 that's carried forward into 28 and which is restated in different terms is the correspondence between the sin committed and the penalty for sin. Men are receiving the penalty which is due for their sin. And the penalty uh, for the sin of denying God is a depraved mind. The punishment matches the crime, even as they did not like to retain the knowledge of God. God gave them over to a debased mind. What he's saying is, in essence, man did not like the knowledge of God. That's what we've seen. He's aware of God. He, he becomes aware of God through the creation as well as his own uh, sense of divinity. But this is what he suppresses and pushes back and drives to the very corners of his mind. Though he never really succeeds in getting rid of it altogether. The point is, Paul is saying, man didn't like it. Or perhaps depending on how you translate it, man didn't approve of it. He he thought about God, he considered him, and he decided he did not approve of that idea. And so he rejected the knowledge of God. He thought that wisdom could be found in science or in atheism or somewhere else. But not in religion, certainly not there. He was, of course, aware of it, as Paul says. But it was something he did not like at all. And the reason he does not like it is because of his desire to live a life of sin. Obviously, as Paul has been describing in Romans chapter 1. It is man's immorality, it is his desire to sin, that leads him to get rid of the God to whom he knows he is accountable. And so he seeks as best he can to get rid of this knowledge of God and to live as though there were no God. And so the penalty matches the crime. Men didn't like the knowledge of God, and so what does God do? He gives them over to a debased mind. Or as Robert Haldane says, it is a mind which is judicially blinded. And so the darkness and the blindness which men experience is not solely the result of their own sin, but it is something that God has done to them. He gave them over to a debased mind. And we see what is the result of this. This. Man becomes depraved in his behavior as well. Not just in his thinking, but in his actions. That's the final statement. He gave him over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. The final statement of verse 28. Bad thoughts lead to bad actions. Depravity of thought leads to a depravity of life. And you see how Paul describes this depravity, the depravity of sin, very simply again in terms of the created order. That man was meant to live in a certain way. And yet he says men do that which is not fitting. He does not do the things he ought to do. That he was meant to do by virtue of his creation in the image of God. And that beloved is the way we ought to look at sin. Sin is moral perversion. It involves man doing what he ought not to do. Not only in his denial of the creator. In his desire for autonomy. But as a result of that. His denial of the created order. But it goes even a step further, as we'll soon see. And that is when man does what is not fitting, he's doing what he knows he ought not to do. In verses 29 through 31, he gives a list of these kinds of things, much as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There is a list of vices. We don't need to break them down and look at each of them. But if you take the time to consider them or if you just scan over them, you will see they are not exhaustive, but they are certainly representative of the worst kinds of vices. These are not minor vices. These are major vices. And the point of it is that just as in first or second Timothy three, that man in sin becomes depraved. He becomes vile. He becomes indecent He becomes the opposite of what he was meant to be by virtue of his creation. He becomes irreligious, irreverent, wicked, and so forth. But one of the things that stands out clearly here, as we see this as the conclusion of Romans chapter 1, this list is being added to his discussion on the moral perversion and indeed inversion involved in homosexual behavior, Verses twenty seven uh, four through twenty seven. Now in verses twenty eight through thirty, he, he adds this list in addition to that. Now going back to verses twenty four through twenty seven, the sin of homosexuality was seen as the cardinal vice And thus the principal evidence that man has been given over by God. If man could descend as far into sin, as far as man is capable of going, then surely God must have ceased to restrain him. Obviously so. But lest we think that sin is the only evidence, though it is evidence enough Paul, in verses 29 through 31, adds these other vices as though to say there are many other sins that one could point to as clear evidence of God handing the sinner over, such as being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, hating God, pride, disobedience to parents. On and on he goes. But let me also say this. And I, I haven't stressed this, but I became aware of this actually in a discussion with a fellow Christian I was having a few weeks ago about this chapter. Again, we look at this and we say, you know, this is happening today, isn't it? And we are looking for guidance from this. But something that he said to me struck me and it occurred to me that perhaps others might uh, have thought the same thing. When Paul is speaking of God handing the sinner over judicially, he is not speaking of the individual. And, and there is danger that we might think of it in terms that way. But he is speaking rather of the collective aspect. The plural, you notice, is being used, not the singular. God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, and even as they, verse 28, and so forth. Again, the plural Not the singular. What we have in Romans chapter 1 is not a picture of individual moral perversion in the presence of God in his world. But rather a picture of the corporate dimensions of sin. I could even say the social dimensions of sin. Men are engaged in sin together. That's what Paul is saying as a corporate pursuit, as a corporate endeavor. Certainly by the time we get to verse 32 That will become clear as there is on the one hand a society of the redeemed whom we call Christians and that society we call the church or a society of the godly. So there is, according to the Bible, and this is obvious enough, if you look at the world today, there is a society of sinners. And what we have in Romans chapter one is how God deals with mankind collectively in sin, how he deals with nations, how he deals with the world. And how he will deal with man on the last day. Certainly by uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 that will become clear. But the crowning indictment against the society of sinners is stated in verse 32. And I'll just read the first part. Because we see two statements here. He says, who knowing that the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, and I'll stop there. You see, again, he's saying they know God, and here the knowledge of God specifically consists of the knowledge that those who practice these very moral perversions are deserving of death. In other words, they have a conscience. They have some sense of the justice of God. They know that a a, a coming judgment is indeed coming by which, or, or, or the day on which they will be found liable to hell for their sins, that is a suppressed knowledge, but it is nevertheless a knowledge which they have. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. Men know what they are doing is wrong. That is Paul's point. They are as depraved as their minds become. They still know that it is wrong to sin. And what is more? They know that they will be judged and damned for their actions and That they deserve to be damned for their actions. And yet, Paul says, man, knowing this, that those who practice such things deserve death, they still do them. Man still does the things he knows will damn him. He does them with a full knowledge of what is the result. Again, it's a suppressed knowledge. But it is a knowledge which he never entirely gets rid of. It is impossible, beloved, for man, again, even a depraved man whose mind has become depraved judicially by God. It is impossible even for him to sin in a just world made by God without some sense of the justice, of the punishment, which is due to him for his sin. Such things deserve to be punished. He knows it. But even that is not the worst thing. He does the things he knows he will be damned for. But that's not the worst thing. It is that in the society of sinners, and here at the end, the last statement, we see more than anywhere else the corporate dimensions of sin. It's that man cheers on man in sin. He not only does the same, but he approves of those who practice them. That's the crowning indictment. That's the worst thing of all. He not only does the things he knows he will be damned for, he approves of those who do the same. Isn't it wonderful, he says, about the most obviously depraved practices. If you ever find it strange how much the world glories today and celebrates in homosexuality, go back to verse 32. There's your answer. It isn't enough, Paul is saying, for man in sin to damn himself. It is in his eagerness to see that others are damned along with him that you discover his true depravity as well as the justice of God in damning such a man. There is today, as there was in the first century, a frenzy and an excitement about sin. Almost as though, as Thomas Brooks said, Men are in a hurry to get to hell. And so this is the final blow to man. As John Murray says, it is the consensus of men in the pursuit of iniquity, not man alone in the presence of God as a sinner, but men together. And again, that is what we find today. In 21st century America, not simply that individuals are engaged in the worst kinds of sins, but now culturally we have become a society of sinners where sin is not only acceptable, but encouraged. We celebrate sin as a nation as though it were something wholesome, something good. Men lend their approval to it constantly and beyond that. Men insist that we all join him in this. You ought to approve of it as well. And here is something, let me just say, that I think is the worst indictment against the church today. Perhaps the greatest lie Satan ever told the church, the American church, was that it didn't matter how the world lived so long as we pursued holiness ourselves. And yet look at what Paul is saying here. What is the height of iniquity? It is lending approval to iniquity. It is failing to condemn the worst sins in others, acting as though it were all right. The church today has lost her voice in society. And why is that? Well, I think it's because of this. There's nothing so tragic as when we Christians give the impression to the world that we either approve of or we simply don't care that men are damning themselves by their sins. And this is most evident in the church's soft position on homosexuality. And I would even say her soft embrace of homosexuality. But rest assured, beloved, the day will come and is nearly upon us when it won't be enough to say of the world in her sin, "Let uh, live and let live. But the world will demand your allegiance to its false gods of sin and immorality. And what will you say then? Already we're finding That those who do not approve of homosexuality are losing their place in society. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their voice. It's a slow process, but it is beginning. And we should find nothing strange in this because the world has always been like this. The answer again is found in the Bible. And the only question we should have, again, taking 2 Timothy 3 along with Romans chapter 1, is whether we are willing to be persecuted for the truth or for going to go along with the world in its pursuit and celebration of sin. All who desire to live godly, Paul says, will be persecuted. Here is a day uh, where the need for godliness is as great as ever. And in what will our godliness be seen? Will it not be seen, beloved, in our rejection of the falsehood? And of sin and with the clearness with which we denounce it, as we find in the preaching of John the Baptist or Jesus Christ himself. Men are living in ways they ought not to live. Will we not tell them? Indeed, if we will not, who will? Yes, the world may approve of their sin. It may celebrate it all as something wonderful. But here is the message we have for the world. God does not. God will never approve of sin. He will never approve of the worst sins. And that means that we as Christians cannot either. And we do not. And so let me state the matter as clearly as I can. Even though it would be a crime for me to do this in Great Britain. And one day it may be a crime for me to do it here. Homosexuals will burn in the fires of hell forever. The unquenching fires of hell will surround them. They will consume them. And yet they will never consume. And yet Paul also says to the world so too will the sexually immoral, the covetous, the wicked, the haters of God. He is indicting not just the homosexual, but the whole world. He is warning the whole world that judgment is awaiting them, the judgment of hell. And the reason that judgment is coming is because of sin. These are not things that we can ever approve of, beloved. However culturally acceptable they become, however men uh, may be caught up in the frenzy and the pursuit of sin. We as Christians must always be clear about sin, about its sinfulness, and about the fact that those who practice sin deserve death. What Paul says, even the unbeliever knows. And let me say this as well something that we reform Christians, and perhaps only we are able to say, and that is the fact that God is glorified in the damnation of sinners. Even here is reason to praise Him. But we also recognize at the same time that we have a message for the sinner, do we not? Here we have in Romans chapter one, as Paul later says at the end of Romans chapter five, a picture of sin abounding. Again, never did it seem so true as in our own day. But it is exactly to such a situation that Paul preached his message eagerly. And so we must have no less eagerness today. We are just as able to preach this message so long as we are clear about sin and wrath. We know that God is able to save the worst of sinners. I know this must be true because he saved me and because he saved a man like Paul. And so we are reminded again of the wonder of the gospel, that it should be revealed to a world such as this, even a world so evil as ours. But that leads me now to say one thing in closing, although it may take me uh, a few minutes to say it. Something about the gospel I especially want to highlight as we close Romans chapter one. And it is the fact that this word handed over, which occurs three times in Romans chapter one, is also uh, used in connection with Paul's preaching of the gospel. Perhaps it's already occurred to you or perhaps not. The triple allusion to hand it over in verses 24, 26 and 28 surely tells us. That this is the controlling thought of chapter one of the book of Romans, at least beginning in verse 18 through the end. God revealing his wrath and handing the sinner over to sin. That is the way we become aware of his wrath. But to find the same verb in connection with the cross of Christ in Romans chapter eight, verse 32, where Paul says that God uh, did not spare his own son, but handed him over. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, in his description of the cross. To find it there is surely significant and not accidental. For both occurrences, Romans chapter 1 and 8, have to do with a clear and unmistakable revelation of God's wrath from heaven. When Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that God did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. He is referring to the same phenomenon in view in Romans chapter 1, namely the judicial handing over in wrath for sin. What God is doing today in handing man over to sin, he did at the cross in handing over his son, not sparing him. Both represent a revelation of God's wrath against sin. At the cross, God was judicially handing over his son in wrath. And so there are clear similarities, which we are able to see just by a a simple comparison of the two ideas. But there are also important differences. And these differences, I think, also magnify the glory of the cross. And I'll be saying things here in, in some sense similar to what was said in the Sunday school. For the wrath of God poured out on the cross upon the son of God is mingled with love. It is equally, as we find in the book of Romans, uh, a revelation of the love of God. And there's no such indication in Romans chapter one. And so there are important differences. We find that the love uh, at the cross, the love of God, for instance, for the elect. That's the point of Romans chapter eight at the end. But also and more importantly, I want to stress, we find God pouring out his love upon the son at the cross. The father loved the son even as he bruised him and put him to grief and laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, or perhaps the clearest statement is John chapter 10, verse 17. And who could ever question the truth of this? When you read our Lord saying himself, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again. The father loves the son that he should do this. And yet we are left with the question how it can be that God could exercise or reveal both at the same time upon the same person at the same uh, in the same instance. That is indeed a great mystery that God should at the cross be exercising and revealing both his love for the son and his wrath. But I would uh, I would assert that great damage has been done to the doctrine of the cross when one has been stressed To the expense of the other too often it has been represented as either all wrath. That's perhaps the reformed uh, evangelical representation or all love. That's the liberal version of the gospel. And yet I am saying that the cross is a revelation of both. Equally and perfectly, the father did not cease to love the son, even as he poured out his wrath upon him. The father always loved the son to the uttermost and never more so than when he took up the office of the sin bearer. Again, John chapter 10, verse 17. For herein he does the will of the father. And for this, the father expresses his love and good pleasure in the son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased twice, he says to the son in the course of his sufferings. And so here again, I say, is wrath mingled with love, both coming to perfect expression on the cross. It is indeed, again, a great mystery, yet I think it might help to put it like this. Look at what the father was doing at the cross. Was he expressing his hatred for the son? Did the father hate the son at the cross Such words are difficult to utter, even hypothetically. But we know that such a thing cannot be. That the Father should ever cease to love the Son, even for a single instant. What we see, rather, at the cross is God's hatred for sin. And His holy desire to punish it to the uttermost. Not His hatred for the Son, but His hatred for sin. And nothing makes this so clear to me as the cross. There at the cross, God is revealing not a wrath against his son. But his wrath and displeasure against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Exactly the same truth is stated in Romans chapter one, verse 18. In both places, Romans chapter one, Romans chapter eight, Paul is telling us what it is God is doing about sin. In one, he hands man over in sin. In another, he tells us God hands over his own incarnate son in our stead. But do you notice the symmetry? There is nothing in between. Either God will hand us over in wrath or his son. Those are the alternatives. One tells us that we pay the penalty ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 27. The other tells us that our iniquity was laid upon Jesus Christ and he suffered for it. He bore the wrath of God for it on the cross. But do not ever say or see upon the cross the father's hatred for the son or his wrath for the son. No, there is only love for his person, a holy and perfect and eternal adoration for his very own son. But the great assertion of the gospel is that if God should do this. If he should not spare his own son, whom he loved, whom he always loved, and hand him over. You see, going back to the argument at the end of Romans chapter 8, if he should do even that, how will he not with him freely give us all things? How will he fail to justify us? You see, that's the argument. Not that the father hated the son, but the father loved the son. And yet still he handed him over. That we might be saved and that we might be justified. Or look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. He says, speaking of the cross, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's also wonderful, you see, coming back now to what I began with, and that is the wonder of the gospel. It is a perfect deliverance from what? From God's wrath. Nothing was able to do it, save this one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But you see, his blood is able to do it. It can, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, propitiate the wrath of God, which means the wrath that was due to me, that God himself was revealing against me and has been revealing ever since man fell into sin, fell upon him instead of me. But not only wrath, you see, but also love at the cross. God was exercising wrath, but love at the same time he was expressing and exercising his immeasurable love for the son. And also in him, the elect, he loves that the son should be the redeemer, and thus he loves the redeemed wrath and love mingled together at the cross and both coming to perfect expression there. And it is for that reason that we are able to conclude that if I am in him, then I am saved. I am not only delivered from the wrath of God, but that I am forever loved by God. And there isn't anything in the whole world that could ever separate me from the wrath of God now that he has handed over his own son. And such is uh, the argument that we are leading on to. uh, But for now, we we, uh, lay aside God's word. Amen. And let us come together.